when we're in a state of panic, panic cannot coexist with the depth of our breath when we force breath into the body for a period of five minutes Ooh, or more. Say that one more time. Run that back. <laughs> Run so, that one back. That one was good. Yeah. So people were like, that was so they're good. like, the para and like, you know, like I'm thinking of like some of my family members are like, ah, you know, and they're like in panic mode or That's having an so ataque de nervio, right? But what we don't realize is that truly your body cannot at the same time be in that ataque de nervio and be in that process of internalizing deep breaths. So good. So if so we can good. say from a mind perspective, I'm going to go into my deep breathing and then stay there for five minutes, we're going to be able to override that nervous system response of being in that ataque. Oh my gracious. Even back in high school, Jennifer inspired more than here and I was telling my producer I said yo I'm so happy to just like meet with you just because I feel like there's so much I want to go into mm -hmm. um and I guess I want to start this by like showing you something I don't know if you've seen it online so season one I had Jesse Reyes on the show mm -hmm. right and you know when you're when you're in the moment and you're having these conversations at least for me when I'm having these conversations, um, I'm super present, right? So I don't know what's going to hit, what's not going to hit. I don't know what's going to make the final cut. I'm just like flowing. Mm -hmm. And um, I had asked Jesse Reyes about like, you know, like what does she take for granted? Well, Leslie, can you pass me my phone just so I could show her real quick? So I want to show you this clip. This one, and it's so crazy because you never know what's going to like go, mm -hmm. what will engage with other people. You just don't know. So this clip, for some reason, it just hit on a different level, but I want to show it to you. And I told myself, I said, when I sit down with you, I, I want to get your reaction on this. So let me just show it to so you. What's something that you feel like you took for granted at a, at a young age? They got family parties. Hmm. Yeah, I still mm -hmm. had a great time and I loved it, but I wish I would have known that, like, <laughs> I wish I would have known that, like, uh, it's okay. Life changes, like, yeah. you know, and, like, I was really lucky that my mom is the youngest of 11 and a lot of the family, my mom's side, a lot of the family uh, came over to Canada. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my cousins are there. And because she's the youngest of 11, by default, I'm the youngest of my generation of cousins. Mm -hmm. And so it was a lot of, like, me tagging around and being the youngest. When my parents moved west and we had the crib, it was, like, that was the house that we would party at. So I have a lot of memories of family parties of, like, cousins coming over and montón de aguardiente mm -hmm. and my tias and my mom upstairs haciendo pan de bonos y tamales, you know, gozando hasta la de la mañana with my dad's new stereo. Yeah. Just, like, just, just. It's not even, I don't think I took it for granted because I was a child. So by default, when you're a child, you're more present, mm -hmm. you know? But it would have been nice to, 
I just didn't know that it was going to change. Because you, you get used to that and you think, my cousins are never going to move away. Yeah. They're gonna, we're going to be like this forever. And then all of a sudden people are adults and all of a sudden people are married and all of a sudden yeah. people are moving across the country and it's like, damn, but at least we have the memory. It's crazy, right? Ugh. I remember seeing that. You remember man. seeing that? I do. And I thought to myself, the world needs a hug. Mm. The world needs a hug. Yeah. Because all the comments that I was reading was like, wow, I wish I had this moment. Wow, if if only, if only we knew this was going to be the last of it. I wish I could connect. If It was like all those comments. So I wonder for you, like, what did you take from that clip? It's a really powerful moment that the two of you had. And I believe that a large part of why it resonates with so many of us is because we all have some story that carries nostalgia about the people that we loved that are no longer close to us, that are no longer alive. There is a connectivity that we can all make to our lives. But I think we also have to think about what is happening right now in the world. Right now, we have this immense globalization, which means that we as humans are moving around the world in ways that we never have before. Right. We are migrating to different places. We are um, having jobs that take us far away from home. Before, we used to live in communities. We used to live proximal to the people that we loved and the people that are a part of our immediate family. So we had these multi-generational homes. We had people in collective places, communities, villages that felt each other's presence mm -hmm. for almost a lifetime. And that was a natural way of us being. And now we have this disruption that continues to happen with immigration, globalization, and all these other things that are so unnatural to us that when they happen, they cause a melancholia. They cause mm. a sadness that is almost kind of like, because we haven't really attached language to it, some of us don't know what to do with it. We're just like, something's missing in my world or in my soul. And so I think that that's a lot of what really kind of is underneath Right. Some of what what happened there and what why I think that there's so many people that really resonate with it because we a lot of us have some sort of a story where there's been a disruption or disconnection from someone who we wanted to hold a little bit closer. Yeah. And now we don't really know what to do with that. Dr. Mariel Bouquet <laughs> is here with me today. Um, what do you remember from your childhood, your family parties from the sala? Like, what uh, are your memories there? Uh I mean, when, now that I'm looking at some of the pictures, and, and I actually just went into my family's garage and I took out some of the old photos yeah. and I started going through those mm -hmm. and I was like, oh my goodness. Also, that was like pre-braces and they were not, I'm like, I'm not sharing these. You had braces? I had braces and mm. the before is not pretty. <laughs> so those won't be shared on social, but um, they look just like a lot of, our Latino homes. Yeah. Like my home looked a lot like many of the homes of my like fellow Latin individuals that I know from across the world. Like mm -hmm. we, it's almost like we have a prototype yeah. of like how our salas looked. And the we parties, too. yeah. You had the platico? I had the platico. <laughs> we had the platico. 
And it was yes. like beige couches. Like, why not get dark couches, right? No. No. Beige with the plastico. Uh-huh. You know, the same the same stuff on the walls. Like, my my mother had like a, a china with a whole bunch of like, every time somebody had a baby shower or something like a party, like... We would collect all the favors no. and we had all the favors everywhere. <laughs> yes. We still do that. She still does that. It drives me bonkers. But um, but yeah, you know, like the parties were mad loud. People were pouring out into like the hallways. A lot of the parties that I attended when I was younger, mm-hmm. somewhere in the Dominican Republic, which is where I was born. But I, I came here when I was five. Okay. And most of my family, even though I'm, I was raised in Newark, New Jersey, we were the only ones in Jersey, so the rest of my family was in New York. Okay. And so we would come to the Heights and to the Bronx to actually party. And so the, the actual parties were, like, in somebody's apartment. Right. It was overcrowded. Many of us were staying over. And who I don't was know. that main person for you, like, that main party house for you? Hmm. Was that, like, one of your cousins? Was that an aunt? Like, who was that? Yeah, my cousin, Margarita. Um, <laughs> that was Shout the hub. Margarita. That was a hoe. Well, Shout out to her. I well, love her so the much. Parties. Yes. The good parties. Yeah. The good ones that would go on for forever. And it was like kids, a- adults, grandparents, like everybody was there. Everybody was able to have a good time. And the food was dope. It was like the best food. Like, What would you have? I mean, we always had like, what we call them like um, empanadas now, I guess. Yes, right? yeah, but yeah. like patelitos is mm-hmm. what we call them. It was always patelitos. I love me some patelitos. So, and me Dominican too. cake is like a must. Mm-hmm. Dominican cake to me is like must that have, like with some guava in the yes. middle. Like, yes. Yes. <laughs> so that was always on deck. And so that was, you know, and then the music. And I don't know how neighbors. I mean, we were all, you know, the am- neighbors among would come us to the house, right? For us, yes. Like, my neighbors were pulling up to mm-hmm. the crib because I'm like. You know, now you kind of live in, you know, more gentrified Washington Heights, Bronx, right? And you're yeah. like, you know, people don't tolerate the noise like how they used to maybe. But before, we were all among each other. And so there was never like a, oh, let me call in a noise violation or whatever. Like, it was just like, but the music Can was I bumping. You? So <laughs> I live in the Bronx, right? Yeah. And my neighbor is so it's a Dominican couple. Mm-hmm. And every Saturday morning, they're blasting that music. <laughs> yeah. And people have actually called, like, 311, like, hey, you got to, like, we got to figure this out. Yeah. The super has called. And I'm like, just let them live. Like, they're chilling. Like, they're they're cleaning. They're actually cleaning. Yeah. They're being productive. They're not bothering anyone. And for me, as crazy as it sounds, like, I'm okay with the noise. Because mm-hmm. it sounds so familiar to me. Yeah. Like they're playing just music and I'm just like, and, and I'm, I'm telling you, it's like back to back. Like I hear, like I can feel the vibration yeah. for some strange reason. I'm okay with it. I love it. Like, I'm like, you know, that to me, like makes me feel like I'm at home. Yeah. Like it makes me feel protected. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I know that somewhere there's someone close by, even if it's not my family member that I can like. You know, I can go to if there's any like I feel there. there's only good feelings that come up for me usually when I hear that somebody's bumping music that I grew up listening to. So I I love that for us. Mm-hmm. And like I think about it like, you know, like if you are, 
let's say you're like in, you know, walking down the street and you see that there's a bug and you're annoyed that there's a bug, you know, and like you're, you're, you want to squash it or something. Um, or like, for example, in Florida, I remember I was like at a restaurant and an iguana passed by and they shooed the iguana like it was like bothering us. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, we are stepping into its habitat That's and right. we're like creating buildings and restaurants and all these things on top of, you know, like it's almost kind of the same, like people are coming into our neighborhoods you know, not realizing that there's already like a system in place. And mm -hmm. that system is we clean on Saturdays typically right. with loud music. And that's something that's actually profoundly healing. The vibrations are healing. The humming is healing. The singing is healing. And so in that moment, we're also healing. We're mm -hmm. cleaning and we're healing. And so you're disrupting what is natural for our environment. That's right. And it's so not understanding. Funny. It's funny that you say that because... Um, so my mom, my mom has Alzheimer's and one of the studies that we're doing um, with my mom now is this music study. So for some reason, the doctors are saying that music and memories play a huge role, right? So yeah. like you can hear a tune and it'll take you back to this memory. Mm -hmm. And my mom, anyone that knows my mom, she loves music. She loves I'm telling you, like, she'll forget everything but music. Mm -hmm. She will never forget a lyric. Mm -hmm. She will never forget where she was. Like, it'll take her back. And it's so, like, I don't know. It's interesting to, mm -hmm. I guess, to, like, that entire study of, like, music mm -hmm. and memory. Yeah. Because our bodies have memory centers and we mm -hmm. remember things. That's why when, like, you smell a familiar smell, you're like, oh, where, where have I, I smelled that before? Like, where is that from? And we have to think about the ways that, you know, our senses are memory retrievers. And so each one of our senses, some are more, more potent than others, but each one of our senses has a way to retrieve powerful memories from moments when we felt safe, when we felt unsafe. And so if we can activate moments when we felt connected, safe, in relationship, loved, you know, for individuals that are in the process of, you know, uh, an Alzheimer's disease, it can be very therapeutic, healthy, and healing. Because what we tend to see more is people saying, hey, do you remember me? Remember my name? Hey, I'm this person. Versus actually using the senses to actually mm. retrieve those memories. So it's a, it's a beautiful way that, you know, they're, they're helping your mom. I'm really glad that you've been able to find that for her. Yeah, it's so funny because sometimes we'll go to the doctor and they'll be like, hey, do you know who she is? And she'll be like, no, but you'll play her anything. Like I recently took her to see La India oh. and she was every, every, every song she knew. Mm. And I'm like, so mm. to me, I'm thinking, I'm like, well, is it is the disease real? Because mm. you remember this. And it's just funny because I feel like memory plays such an interesting part in us growing up because I, I, I genuinely believe that my mom has suppressed memory, meaning like there's things that she doesn't want to remember because it was so traumatic for her. Mm -hmm. I wonder for you, like, because you, you speak... But like even now, like you just said very good things about like what you remembered. Was there ever like a traumatic experience for you in your childhood? Yeah. Um, one that kept recurring and I kept noticing it coming up as triggers in a very different way now in my, you know, the latter part of my, my 30s has been the saying goodbye to my dad at the airport because my dad was actually um, 
in the Dominican Republic for a majority of my childhood. So my parents were married, but because of immigration issues, they actually could not be together and my father couldn't be with us to help raise us. So we actually would travel to Dominican Republic once a year because Mm -hmm. that's what we could afford. And the goodbye was so hard every time, every single time. It was gut-wrenching. And I realized, especially now I travel a lot, and I realized that I had actually had this trauma response coming up in the airport every single time that I traveled. And it started coming up by way of me thinking, always thinking that I was missing something or that I messed up something and someone needed to come and get me. Either I needed to cash the Uber back to my home or if I was getting picked up that I, I need something needed to happen I, and it was this experience of inner chaos that needed to happen while I was in an airport setting mm. which I felt was really fascinating until I was like why here every time but you didn't recognize it at that time well interestingly enough the insight came to me at the airport but it came to me at the gate where I was like why every time right you know right. like I did have my ID. I did have my password. I did have all the things that were my essentials, and I didn't need to go back home. I remember that one time when I finally gained the insight, I had actually called my sister, who was the person that dropped me off, and I was like, you need to come back. I don't have my ID. And she's like, Mari. And I'm like, I know. Oh, no, wait, it's here. She's like, come on, girl. And so that's when I realized I'm perpetuating this trauma response in a different way for myself because I cannot feel ease in a in an airport setting. I must be in chaos. Mm. And so that's when I was realizing that there's so much pain in in airports for me. And mind you, like I still fly out of Newark Airport and that was the airport that we flew out of every single mm. time. So it's like you're revisiting that moment every Same single time. And it's just so profoundly traumatic. I mean, I think that uh, for anybody who has had a separation, people that are in distant countries from their loved ones, you'll get it, right? And that's why I talked about that melancholy. Like, we feel this this deepened sadness mm-hmm. or this deepened inner chaos as I've experienced it. Because for me, it just showed up as anxiety. Right. And it becomes this profound, almost kind of like integrated experience into into the person that you are. It doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to stay that way, which is why, of course, like I, I operate as a psychologist and as a healer and I, I therapize myself too. But Is that a thing? Can you do that? Can you therapize yourself? Like, can, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like how do you do that? Like, I'm just curious. I know. So the thing about, I think, most psychologists is that we tend to be, there's a lot of psychological defenses and we tend to be intellectualizers, which means okay. that we like, Instead of, you know, like just being in ourselves and in the moment and really like feeling our emotions, we're like, I'm feeling that. Like, you know, you just kind of like name it and like you overanalyze yourself, which is is tricky. But sometimes it can be really helpful because I can sit with myself and say, that's what was happening. Okay. And even, you know, I had a really beautiful conversation with my dad the other day. And as he's talking to me, I'm like, oh, wow, he's, you know, he's really trying to gain insight in this area. And I was able to like almost kind of have a second brain mm-hmm. operating at the same time that I was also taking in my father's words. So it can mm-hmm. be helpful, but you know, it can, if, if it's overdone, 
you can over-intellectualize and not really be in your emotions. And you can be hyper-rational and not really feel your humanness, which is also really essential for us to just be healthy. Right. I, I want to ask, what is your definition of the word trigger? When someone says they are triggered, they are being triggered by someone or something, what does that mean? A trigger is a memory. And typically it's a body memory, but it's also my memory. So a trigger is when a person has anything in their environment that brings them back to a moment when they felt unsafe. And that anything in their environment can be produced by way of the senses. So it's something that you see that brings you back, something you smell. It's something that you taste and you're like, oh, I, I had that same taste when, you know, or that same like whatever that I had back then when, you know, I was in that really violent argument, let's say, right? Like, so it's anything that is in our environment that is then taken in by our senses that creates a memory. Now, there's also an internal type of trigger. And mm. what that is, is like if you feel a sense of sadness or sorrow, that can actually remind you of a time when you were in deep sorrow. So it's our own emotions can be triggers. Okay. Um, our own like thoughts can be triggers. And so we also have these internal triggers that are, you know, possibilities for a remembrance of something that happened in the past. So there's so much there. And I told you, I said, there's so much I want to get <laughs> yeah, into. I was ready. I'm so ready. I'm, I grew up with six people in the household. Mm -hmm. So big family, mother and father divorce. Um, I was very young when my mom and dad got divorced. I actually have a brother that we're three months apart. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was 14, believe it or not, I was 14 years old. I'll never forget and I remember looking at my brother and I said, when's your birthday? And I said, how old are you? He said, I'm 14. I'm like, wait, we're, wait, we're both 14. Mm. And I just remember being so angry at my mom. Like, why wouldn't you tell me this? How are we three months apart? And then it clicked like, Bobby cheated on mommy. Mm. And it made me so angry to the point that I, absolutely disliked my stepmother. Like I did not give her time or day. I didn't even give her a chance at all mm -hmm. because I was just like, you were the one that stepped into this. You know, I'm the older sister, you know, I'm three months older. And I kept saying that I'm three months older. And I never, even to this day, I never had a conversation with Bobby like, well, why? Like what happened? And I don't know if I could muster up, maybe there'll be a time where I can like muster up the energy to even ask him. Um, you know, there's always two sides to the story. So you'll never really know. But I just remember being so angry at my mom. So a lot of my childhood, I was just so angry. But what if someone is still living in that trauma? Mm -hmm. How do you then separate and I guess operate on a higher level? while the chaos is happening beneath. It takes a lot of willpower because the hardest thing to do when you're someone that is in healing or trying to elevate or trying to expand is to be or go back to the places that are, I call them diseased, or the places that hurt you to begin with. 
And so when you're still swimming in the pool and the pool has poo in it, right? Like, yeah. you know, like you're going you're gonna to become in, infected by it, right? Like you can take as many antibiotics as you wish to take. There's always going to be a risk for infection. And so many times that is why people decide that they're, they're going to disjoint, right? And, and take a, an alternate path and do the healing separately because that's the only way that they believe they will be able to survive and many times it's the only way that they can mm -hmm. but for the people that actually can't do that the change can happen it's just going to look a lot more microscopic mm -hmm. and the thing about it looking more microscopic is that sometimes people lose hope because they're not seeing this monumental change happening in their lives because they're still very much deep in the place that is continuing to re-injure the wound that's already there what about for you? Like, when did you make the decision? Like, okay, I want this to be my practice. I'm going to study this. I'm going to make this, I guess, change because this mm -hmm. is not the norm, honestly, mm -hmm. for us. Like, culturally, this yeah. is not what we grew up in. And the way mental health is being spread around today, that was not how it was for us back then. No one was saying mental health at all. No. So I guess at what moment did you say, this is what I want to do? You know, I always believe that um, there are moments in our lives when we get like little bits and pieces of messages of what we're supposed to be on this earth to do. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that that came to me at a very young age, but I just never knew what to do with it. Primarily because therapy is not only something that we don't necessarily like talk about or do or go to traditionally in our communities, but also because I didn't even know it was a profession that I could actually get into. Like there was mm -hmm. no no guidance, no nothing around that. And therapy and psychology is actually my second career. Mm -hmm. I actually had our first career in advertising. And so for five years, I worked in New York. I always say it's like my Mad Men era. Like yeah. I was like an ad executive in New York, just like doing my thing. And I felt so incredibly unfulfilled. Mm. I, I felt like there was no soul to what I was doing. And I remember... That's deep. Yeah. That's deep. Yeah. And it's probably the first time I actually said it that way. But yeah. it's the reality of my experience. It was monetizing on behalf of a corporation. It was literally like I was a tool for capitalism. There was no actual experience of self-fulfillment or collective fulfillment that I saw in my environments in, in advertising. Mm. And it it really pushed me in the direction of taking on volunteering as a way to pass time that could actually feel like I was depositing good into other people's lives or actually doing something with my time that actually had some sort of an impact. And I went back to Newark, to my hometown, mm -hmm. and I started volunteering. I started volunteering at night, on the weekends. Sometimes I worked in a suicide hotline, so I would actually go to work and work my full hours and then go to the suicide hotline and actually take overnight hours and then shower there and come back to work. Like I would actually like wow, be so devoted to being wow. a volunteer in this area. And I was like, I remember at that time I was also on my own mental health journey, like just feeling like I, I, don't, I didn't really know kind of like how to, self-actualize and feel a sense of fulfillment and, and joy mm. and in that journey um 
I was also like undergoing like a, a surgery at that point in time. And I remember a colleague of mine, a Latina, Marilyn, so shout out to Marilyn. Mm-hmm. Um, she was like, you know what? Um, you seem like you're experiencing a lot of like heavy emotions around having to go to surgery. Why don't you like talk to this person? They're my therapist. And the first session that I went to that therapist, he was like, you should be a therapist. We're going to get you there. I wasn't even there for that. I was there to like pour okay. out my emotions about this surgery. And for the next two years, he just kept pounding at that. He's like, you know, like you can make this amount of money. This is the thing that, you know, you can do. You can be in private practice. You can be in a hospital. Like you should just go. You should but, just but go. But what, what do you think he saw in you that would then have him say, hey, you should be a therapist? I think he saw psychological mindedness. And I'll tell you where that comes from. That actually comes from my parents. My parents are like the community psychologists in the Latino world in Newark. Like they're (laughs) like, I kid you not. They are, if they had an opportunity to get the degrees that I've had, they would be psychologists because they're naturals at it. You'll hear my mom sometimes I'm like, well, like you don't have to take on everyone's stuff. Like, you know, but you'll hear her, you know, you think chimiando, but when you really listen to what she's saying, like, oh, she's like, actually helping a person through a tough time recently she helped someone through a divorce and i'm like mom just just tell them to go to therapy you're not their (laughs) therapist but i you know i think that there there's that but also when i was volunteering in my community i was like there's so much pain here we're suffering i started understanding statistically like we don't go to therapy and at least not compared to our white counterparts and it's causing us also to hurt a lot more and i was like I need to change something here. And it starts by me just doing what this therapist is telling me to do. I need to go and be a therapist. And so I, you know, it was really hard because I was already getting really good money. Right. And then I went eight years of being like a college student all over again. Um, but, but that it, was your purpose, right? Like, I'm, would you... I'm living my purpose. I, so I don't regret it at all. I wonder, what would, what would you say to someone who is in limbo? They don't even know what their purpose is. You know, most of us have not learned how to sit with silence. And silence can be such a great teacher for our deepest insights and what our hearts desire and what our purpose is. But we're so captured by this busy world. And if we ever, you know, aren't stimulated, we can grab our phones and become, you know, stimulated yet again. And we don't have an opportunity to really sit with ourselves. Mm-hmm. One, to befriend ourselves, get to know ourselves, love ourselves. All the, the ways in which we need to be in relationship with ourselves that are really healthy. We just mm-hmm. have not been taught that. But secondly, to really like get into the deepest parts of our minds and allow our minds to really tell us like what feels right here. Many of us are not taught that. And I think that that's a really, really good first step. For people being able to uncover what truly makes them happy and then map out a plan around that goal, right? Like, it makes me happy, then, you know, figure out a way to monetize it. So Maya Angelou has, like, a a really good saying where she says, if you know better, you'll do better. But what if you don't know better? Mm -hmm. Like, I, so I live in the Bronx and I'm always like, I want to get out, I want to get out. But my whole family is in either El Barrio or in the Bronx. Yeah. So I've never seen it. Yeah. You know, so I, in that aspect, even, like I said, my relationship with money, 
I don't know better. So therefore I feel like, well, I've never been taught this. So when I'm actually around people that are what I feel like are winners, I'm like, oh, th so there is this way. But what if you, you're not aware of the better? Well, that inner knowing that you're talking about, because there's an inner knowing. You're yeah. like, I want that. I want yeah. is an inner knowing. And that is already like, you know, what I frame as like a cycle breaker's intuition, basically. Like some of us have within us this intuition or intuitive knowing or like inner messaging that helps us to see something different and helps us to see a new way. We may not know exactly how to map that out just yet, but we know that something needs to be different in order to feel like we are walking the path. Mm. And so for many of us, when we're able to not only really listen to the intuition and the message, right, but also connect with people that might have some sort of guidance for how to map it out, that's when we can really start to really walk our destiny. Right. I didn't know anything about therapy, not a thing. I simply went to this appointment, and while I was there, I had an expert. Mm -hmm. I was able to ask the questions, well, how do I do it? Where, what do I need? You need a master's and a doctorate. You need to be able to, first step, take the GRE, the graduate record exam, right? in order to actually get into a university. And so I had no idea what I was doing, but I was asking the questions so that people could guide me so that I can get to my destiny. So but, can... you, but you saw something within yourself. What about the people that haven't seen that within themselves? They don't know their worth. Mm -hmm. They don't see it yet. Because I've struggled with that, like knowing my worth, confidence. There's times where people see it before me and I'm like, really? Yeah. So what about those people that don't see it yet? Well, like, how do you find it? One way that you find it, I didn't see it myself. Okay. So this person told me, you, you need to be a therapist, right? Like, who would have ever thought, like, in a million years that I would have ever gone into psychology? I, I would have never, if you would have asked 10-year-old me, I would have never told you that. Right. Um, the same with my family. My family, you know, they have, like, their quirks and their things, and they can drive me, you know, up a wall sometimes. Yeah. But um, but they're very, very much like, I would say, like, they have a way to see things in me that I sometimes can't see in myself. Mm. And my sister, especially, she's my older sister by three years, and she constantly says these things to me where I'm like, she'll be like, like, sis, you're the prize. And I'm like, I am the prize. I didn't think about that, right? Like, if I'm, like, going through, you know, a tough breakup, like, you are the prize. And so it's a reframe, and it's something that's being said to me or deposit deposited into my mind that I can then make the choice to internalize and do something with, or I can just discard like, no, nah, you know, not really. But I've had people in my life that have given me something here and there. So I have been very fortunate in that way, right? I know that a lot of us don't get that. Yeah. And perhaps it's up to us, the people that have had that, 
to then deposit forward, right? To mentor forward, to go back into our communities and talk to especially younger, especially younger Latinas, especially. Because the status of the mental health of young Latinas right now is plummeting at a record level. And we as the Latinas that are you know, either established or coming up, we need to go back into our communities and talk to these girls and let them see our faces, faces that reflect their faces, that look like them, and have conversations with them that are affirming and can see their light and reflect their light to them because they need us to be able to show them some sort of a message so that they can then find their own path and their destiny that's built on light and positivity, especially if they're in environments like what we grew up in that are very culturally um, beautiful and have a lot of nourishing qualities, but are also, you know, very detrimental to a lot of us because they're filled with poverty or they're filled with, you know, other things that are connected to poverty, right? And so we need to, we need to reach out too. What do you think is like the the cycle that we need to break? And I'm just saying that because you have a book that's yeah. coming out, Break yeah. the Cycle. Yeah. What do you think in our community, in our culture, what is the cycle that we must break? There are a number, but I, I do believe that a big one for us is the cycle of stigmatizing mental health or, or ascribing to not allowing for our stories to come out of our family. So not airing our dirty laundry, basically. Mm -hmm. When we continue to believe that we can't air our dirty laundry and then, you know, seek help with a therapist or another healer, then we just let these wounds fester and those wounds become intergenerational Mm -hmm. if, if they're, you know, if they're left unattended most often than not. They just metabolize into something else and they, you know, they just become trauma. And so if we are able to then, you know, in our community say there is anxiety here, there's depression here, there's trauma here, there's a lot of pain here. There are a lot of cultural factors that tie into that machismo, right? Like Mm. there's a lot of like, and even Marianismo, the other side of, you know, machismo, like there's a lot of ways in which the self-sacrificial, like, Latina stereotype that a lot of us like unconsciously succumb to, myself included, Mm -hmm. that can be very harmful to us and can, you know, perpetuate mental unwellness. And so all of that tied together is a global conversation we need to be having as as Latino folks, right? And so if we can have those conversations wholeheartedly and from a destigmatized place, from a, a, a place where we're not injecting the conversation with shame then we're going to be able to break out of a lot of the cycles that continue to fester in our communities that become generational I think also and and I'm not too sure so you got to chime in this one but um also when you bring the conversation up of like therapy right I remember when I brought the conversation up to my family like hey I think we should get a family therapist there were people in my family that were like, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. If you want to seek therapy, that you do that, but we're not going to do that. So how do you then bring the family together? Like if it is a family issue, but some family members don't want to deal with the issue, how does it then get resolved? Well, you know, 
you have to meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. And that's the unfortunate truth is that we have the families that we wish we had, mm-hmm. the families that would be willing to go to therapy, the ones that would be willing to do the healing, that would be willing to talk about the secrets that everybody's keeping. We wish that our families could be that. And I call that our true, like our fa- our false family. Our true family is a family that we truly have. It's the ones that are perhaps not ready yet, are maybe perpetuating the harm and are likely to also like really sometimes even get in the way of your own healing. And so in part, the person that is the usual person that's the cycle breaker or the person that's trying to do, you know, something in the family to create change, like that person has to one, like just fully accept or radically accept that they are in a family where they're going to have some key players that aren't going to be willing to, you know, participate (laughs) and um and then also we have to be willing to acknowledge that our healing our individual healing is also a, a very powerful source of healing for our families when we heal ourselves and we go back into those same environments it's almost like we have a bit of a force field around us because we've been able to actually like do some of the work to not feed into the dynamics. And so the more that we can do that and that we can be willing to do that work separately and then bring ourselves back into our families in a way that feels more just healed and elevated, the more that we'll be able to, you know, not, not feed into the dynamic that's causing harm to everybody else. So you know, one is radical acceptance. The other is really being willing to just focus on your own healing. And Mm -hmm. then if anybody else feels motivated or, um, they feel like they, they want some of that light that you have, then you can tell them where you got it from, whether it was therapy, another type of healing. And hopefully that's going to be, you know, something that they're, they're going to be willing to do just by way of seeing the changing you. You speak so calm, Dr. Maria. You're very calm. I wonder, do you ever get angry? Oh, yeah, I'm Latina. Do you? <laughs> I'm Dominican. Do I ever get angry? It's <laughs> my baseline. I'm joking. But, but yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you speak like so calm, like so soothing. Like I'm hearing you and I'm like, wow, I feel relaxed here. <laughs> so you do. Yeah. There's times where you're like, you're going through it. I'm a firecracker, it. yeah. It's just that I'm a fire. What's your sign? I'm a Taurus. And people usually ask me about my rising. I'm rising Virgo on everything. I have no idea what it means. No, no clue. <laughs> my cousin tells okay. me, like, she tries to school me every time. And I'm like, I always forget. Right. But, You're like, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm a full-on Taurus. Like, okay. stubborn. Yeah. Very earthy and grounded. Okay. And incredibly loyal. And I'm very loving. Very mm. loving. The idea of grace, right? Because that's like a popular term now. Like, oh, we should give this person grace. Let's show them some grace. What does that mean to you? Showing someone some grace. Like the term grace, what is that? Break that down for us. I think it's more about seeing the whole human that's in front of us with their capacity to fault, just like we have a capacity to do that. I think that's, that's what it means. When I feel like I'm fully seen by the people that I know love me, I'm fully seen with all of my stuff Mm. and they show me grace because they understand 
where my wounding is. They understand where my strengths are. And so the fact that they are able to see the full complexity of the human that I am, that helps me to feel truly and profoundly seen. I think that that's where grace extends from. Mm -hmm. It's from really seeing a person with all of their faults. I think that it comes up when, when we're talking about our parents. For sure. Right? 100%. It's like, what... It, it, you know, we, we can't necessarily like say, oh, okay, you know, they've been hurt, so they hurt me, right? Like, it's not as simple as that, but there are a lot of complexities that they've had to go through and a lot of traumas that they've had to go through. And they, they didn't have the tools, they didn't have podcasts, they didn't have books, they didn't have literally anything, conversations. They didn't have therapists, they didn't therapy. have anyone. They, you know, they may have had like a community healer or, you know, like someone in a church environment, like, Maybe, you know, they're friends, but they didn't have the abundance of the healing tools that we have. I say that always, you know, like we have intergenerational privilege in this generation of having this amount of resources available to us on our phones. Mm -hmm. And that crosses socioeconomic status. Like a lot of us, you know, even individuals that are, you know, where I come from, like even in working class, have access to phones and mobile devices that are smart and by way of that may have access to healing tools as well, right? Social media. And so we they didn't have that. So sometimes when I am extending grace to my parents who have their own like ways of really bringing up their stuff, especially when they're really stressed, is by trying to understand how I and my generation have had so much access mm. to things that they have spent six and seven decades working through on their own. And that helps me a little bit with being able to show them grace because I see them fully. All their pain, all the ways that they didn't get an opportunity to really have their pain nourished and the ways that they've perpetuated hurt to myself and my sister because they didn't know how to step up and, and do better and be more emotionally attuned and aware and mature. And it's a tough pill to swallow. It's my own journey, right? It's a tough pill to swallow. And it's not how everybody's going to look at it, but I do feel like Grace has looked like that for myself with my parents. How does Grace look for you? It takes on a little bit of a different like like how do you show yourself grace you know I actually talk to myself mm. and I talk to myself by using the nickname that my family uses for me which is Madi mm. and so I'll I'll say like what do you need Madi what do you need right now and sometimes I even like it, it may sound like self-pity but it's not it's actually compassion and love well I'll say to myself oh Madi like you suffered a lot. Mm. I really feel for you. It's like I'm talking to myself in in the nurturing voice that I need and desire in that very moment. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. What about, because I'm the opposite. I'm hard on myself. Mm. So I'm like, no, you should have done this. Like if I don't, if I miss a workout in the morning, I'm like, no, you should have worked out. Why didn't you work out today? You had all the time in the world. Why didn't you get up? The Why'd you go out critic. last night? Yes. Yeah. So I'm like the total opposite of that. Mm -hmm. That's I wonder for someone that's like always constantly hard on themselves, that is like competing with themselves. Mm -hmm. 
it's a lot easier to go there because the brain naturally goes there. Mm -hmm. But if we can gently step back from Mm -hmm. having that inner dialogue with ourselves by just like literally like unplugging the mic and saying, no, I'm not going to talk to myself that way. This is the way that I desire to talk to myself or this is the way that I want to talk to you, Mari. Like you deserve like a gentle voice. Like, because there are times when I have caught myself, even the the natural thing that a lot of us do when we do something that is out of character. That was so stupid, you know? All the time. Right? I'm like, girl, why did you together. do that? Yeah, I'm like, why did you do that one? That was crazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's important to understand that the language that we use toward ourselves internalizes. And it stays there unless we are willing to contest it. And... Most often than not, a lot of that stuff is happening in your mind. Mm -hmm. So it's important that you speak the words out loud that you desire to hear that are nourishing and that challenge that inner critic. So I like practicing either with people that I've worked with or for myself. I like practicing saying it out loud. I think that's incredibly healthy. I think that's why like words of affirmation in front of a mirror are so powerful. Mm. And, And they actually like have a, a, a direct impact on our mental health, it's because we're literally like challenging the inner critic with a more powerful voice. And it's our own voice, which is even True. more beautiful. Like it's my voice, my intonation, all of the intricacies of my voice are coming out in this very affirming, nourishing, loving way. And there's oftentimes nothing more beautiful than that. Like for you to be able to deposit into yourself in that way is is really powerful. And we don't do that enough. No. It's such a simple thing that we can do that can actually make a, a change, at least when it comes to the inner critic. And many of us don't. We, we just don't know how to. Or we yeah. don't know that it's accessible to us to do that. I wonder where do you go, like, for your help? Where do you seek your therapy? Where do you go to, like, unwind mm-hmm. if you're having a bad day and you're just going through it? Like, who do you talk to? Who does the therapist seek therapy from? <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe in, like, if I need to stay balanced, I need to practice what I preach. So I've been seeing a therapist for, it's almost like 10 years. It's a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I, like... Most of us, I had to try a couple people out. They didn't work out. And the person that I've been with for now all this time has been a really important piece of my healing journey. So I I myself go to therapy and I myself do the things that I ask other people to do. So I want to ask, though, mm -hmm. is it are you culturally connected? Like, is your therapist of Latin descent? They're not. They're not. No, they're not. And in part because the person that I connected with around that time was, she, she just, she didn't have it. Right, (laughs) right, So like that, the thing that we need to recognize is that a person can be culturally fluent and culturally responsive in the ways that it's a person of color, but they're just not Latinx. Right. And but they are incredibly intentional about showing up and understanding my cultural nuances. And I never have felt a single day of my time working with this person that I've had to like over explain myself. Mm. So I think when we as therapists are able to do the work so that a person doesn't have to, you know, 
go into therapy and then spend half of their session trying to explain a term to us because we just don't get it and we haven't done the work to really, you know, culturally like analyze our, our client's world, then we can have a deep connection that is healing mm. and, and can last years in the ways that mine has. But I have a whole bunch of other people. I have a naturopath. I have, you know, my water healer. A water healer? Water healer. What is that? Ugh. What's a water healer? So it's, I don't think that I can give the work that she does credit, but I work with um, this person, Rocio Navarro, who does work with sound healing in the water. So it's not only sound bathing, but there is a lot of really kind of orienting around how to have a different relationship with water and how water can be meditative. And that's a practice that I've taken on recently. That's, that's been Yeah, it's been amazing. And that's so good. It's it it's that's amazing. So good. It has been incredible and it has been very healing for me. And I've actually brought my family, like my sister, you know, I've brought to some sessions with me oh, and really? she's been able to really feel a lot of that healing essence that comes out of those So wait, sessions. break this down for me. So you're under the water. Like, how does this work? You're floating in, in water. Okay. So think of, you know, kind of how anybody can float, right? And mm -hmm. so but you're being guided. Um into actually almost like these movements in the water mm -hmm. for an extended period of time. And you're being asked to just really kind of surrender into the water. and Almost um, like baptism all over again. You know, interestingly enough, I felt like I was actually feeling connected to the baptism that was happening for my family members on that very day while I was mm. in, in the water. And I was like, this is, it's almost like I'm experiencing a baptism. They're Christian. They're, so they were in the church having an actual baptism. And so I was like, there, water heals, right? And water cleanses and it nourishes and it has all of these different qualities. And I've been learning a lot about that with, you know, Rocio and, and it's been, it's been like, very life-changing yeah. um, for me. So because I'm a holistic psychologist, I believe in and I operate from the perspective of we need to re-invite in a lot of these holistic, ancient, indigenous practices that we've discarded mm -hmm. for many generations. And we've been ill as a society as a result because we've been disconnected from our roots and the reconnection has been profoundly healing for me, for a lot of the people that I've worked with. I see for a lot of, you know, Rocio's um, clients. And, and I, I think that therein lies the very recipe for our collective healing. It's not in the, you just talk to me in therapy and that's it. It's in sound bath meditations. It's in working with naturopaths to clear the body out of its toxins and, you know, us not having to suffer the consequence of being in generations of autoimmune disorders and diabetes and being, you know, in bodies that are basically attacking themselves. Mm -hmm. It's in, in all the things like we need to literally, literally do like an overhaul of our health. What about, and I feel like this question that I'm about to ask, I just have to say like, cause like I said, growing up, 
therapy wasn't popular, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what about, I guess, the group where you can't afford therapy, right? The community that just cannot afford it. Um, they want it. It's not there. It's mm-hmm. not available to them. Where can we go? Where Who do we go to? Who like Where are the centers yeah. that we can enter to get the therapy? Because I always say that therapy looks... Your self-care looks a little, a little bit different when you have some money. Yeah. You know, like but for me, you know, when I started making a little bit of money, I started, you know, going into into hypnotherapy. Yeah. And I started seeing a hypnosis and that became very beneficial for me. Even doing maybe spas, right? Mm-hmm. Getting a, a massage therapist was another form of therapy, another form of self-care. But what what about the communities that just don't have it? You know, it's a very fair question. And... So I'll answer that in two ways. So the first of which is therapy is only 45 minutes of a person's week. It is not the only thing that is going to produce healing. Most of the work that's done is done outside of the therapy room. And so it's going to be really essential for people to understand that therapy has its utility and it's helpful, but it is only as good as you are able to use it, right? Like if you're open to it and you're able to use it. And then in addition to that, there's all the work that you have to do thereafter. There's journaling usually, you know, for therapy. There's like, for me, you know, as a holistic psychologist, like I also like help people to integrate mindfulness and meditation into their daily lives. And that can even be found in the things that we already love and do. Like there's mindfulness and meditation in music, like the music that we listen to, not the um music right right, like, right. Yeah. there's of course there's a healing benefit and a healing impact that happens through that music and it's been tested and proven but there's also like in the 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 very like um all those vibrations that you talked about that you feel from your neighbor's house like love it there is there love is a it. healing impact and effect that happens to us there think about for example a sound bath meditation, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we acknowledge, okay, this has therapeutic effect and it it heals. What is happening that is creating the healing? There are sound vibrations, very micro vibrations, and also sound frequencies that are being emitted that Mm -hmm. are creating a very mind-body healing process. But there's also that that happens in, you know, the backseat of your cousin's, like, Civic, because that's how I grew up. I mean, because it's Civic with the Volcina in the back, you know, and it's like, right? And you're like, you're experiencing less micro, more macro vibrations, but Uh you're also experiencing the vibration that is also kind of like um, Mm recentering in a very like, um, almost kind of like, I won't get into the full sciences of it all, but there is something that's happening that is healing in that moment as well. And so I always like to, you know, help people to, see whatever is already in their environment and try and grab a little bit of healing from it. We can heal by humming and humming actually has therapeutic effects on our mental health. So instead of singing that Bad Bunny song, why don't you hum it? Right? And especially because right? I love that. I like, love that. I'm yeah, like yeah. it's all you're already listening to it. Yeah. So just hum it. And that way you can get the mental health impact, right? And and actually help yourself in the short term and the long term because you start like creating neural pathways toward healing the more that you practice these healing practices. 
but you already have it right there. So why not just use it to your advantage? Can you imagine like a Bad Bunny healing humming session? Girl, like, I feel like you need so to host dope. it. I know. I feel like you really need to host it. I feel like I do too. Like I feel like this, I'm going to put it out there in the ether. And like, because we're manifesting. Growing up Latina, Bad Bunny's Dr. Mariel, yeah. we'll have a Bad Bunny session. <laughs> Bad Bunny will be a part of it. Yes. Um, yeah, but you know, the same with, you know, breathing. Like if we're living, we're breathing. I always say that. I always say, as long as you have breath, you have options. That's beautiful. Always. I love that. And I it's always true. say that. It's true. Like people say, take a take a deep breath. No, take several. Take five yeah. minutes worth. And <laughs> yeah, like go sit see. down and right. take a breath. Right. Yeah. But like don't stop. Keep going. All right. And allow your body to then catch up to the fact that you're trying to help it heal. Because things that we don't know from a scientific perspective is that when we're in a state of panic, panic cannot coexist with the depth of our breath when we force breath into the body for a period of five minutes Ooh, or more. Say that one more time. Run that back. <laughs> Run so, that one back. That one was good. Yeah. So people were that like, that was so good. The like, para and like, you know, like, and thinking of like some of my family members are like, ah, you know, and they're like in panic mode or That's having an attack so of the nervio, right? But what we don't realize is that truly your body cannot at the same time be in that ataque de nervio and be in that process of internalizing deep breaths. So good. So if so we good. can say from a mind perspective, I'm going to go into my deep breathing and then stay there for five minutes, we're going to be able to override that nervous system response of being in that ataque. Mm. I have three things that I already came to mind. One is... Is my producer going to kill me? Wait, I'm, I have three things. Hold on. Because um, <laughs> the show's called Growing Up Latina. Yeah. So how important is it to tap back into your inner child? Mm. Oh, I do it all the time. She needs me. She has needed me a lot. Um, and it's incredibly important for our healing, for us to go back to those places because those places are typically places where we were imprinted to have our first set of wounds. Mm. And I, as a psychologist, know that the deeper that we go, the deeper the healing. And so for me to be able to go back into my own wounds, I had to go back to that initial separation from my father and all those tears and the feeling, the feeling of desperation of not wanting to see him leave. It needed to happen for me to go back into my inner child and tell her that she's okay now, that I can take care of her and do that over and over again with all of those moments where I kept being re-triggered. And, and that's the thing that we need to do for ourselves continuously. So it's incredibly important. I see it from a personal perspective, how therapeutic it has been, but I've seen it a thousand times over when I'm working with others. Okay, and then also fear. What is your biggest fear? Mm. <sighs> wow. My biggest fear is that I won't be able to have aging parents and that I won't be able to hold on to enough of them if I were to outlive them. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, go deeper with that. Yeah. What did, like, break that down? 
you know, recently I've been actually recording my parents a lot mm -hmm. and asking them questions about their inner children in a very intergenerational way of healing our family. But I've been asking them questions about what happened growing up, what were some moments of joy, some moments of pain, and recording them in their process. And it's for my own keeping, but I also have been doing that because I want to remember their voice and I want to have tangible, actual, like, ways to get back to their voice if I don't have it. And I want to be able to hear their laugh and have their laugh present because their laughs are very, like, powerful healing agents for me. So I have been doing some of the work to try and capture their essence because I, I know that we are, in essence, structured to be on this earth, to outlive our parents. But when they're such a central part of our being and our lives, what happens when we don't have their voice, their presence, their love, the words that they would have said to us, right? Like, I don't want to miss not having that. And I know that a part of that is just internalized and it lives in my heart. And I still have them present. I'm very, very blessed. But that's definitely something that I, I fear, like, you know, not being able to hold on to enough of them to feel that wholeness that I feel because they are present now. Okay. And then last question before we get into rapid fire. Um, grieving. We tend to grieve when we lose. How do you grieve when someone is present in your life mm. and you lost them, but mm. they're alive? How do you heal from that? How do you grieve? How do you navigate through that feeling? Yeah. You know, grief is a journey that can't be pushed too much because what can happen is that you repress the grief and it comes back up in other ways. So we have to sit with the hard emotion that is sorrow and, right. and the loss of someone. And at times when it becomes too hard and we really want to let go, let's say it's a, you know, a broken relationship, I say, and, and I mentioned this like even in the book, we have to attend their funeral. Like we have to literally create a funeral for them in our minds or even like write it out and actually attend their funeral and sit with the fact that this person is no longer there. Close the casket and, and allow yourself to really visually like in your mind see the the final moment of that person like mm. not no longer being present with you and it you know it, it sounds a little morbid but I think it's it's more so like you know we we tend to think okay that person's still there I can reach out to them um and that leaves an opening or or a, a wound that's still you know like it, not, unable to heal but mm -hmm. when we can determine, okay, this person is no longer present. I've already, you know, allowed myself to think of the end. And it allows your mind to really, like, close that chapter a lot quicker. Okay. Ooh, I'm excited. All right, I'm going to ask, because I, I know, I know you have to get out of here. But <laughs> let me ask the rapid fire. This is great. <laughs> Ooh, you ready? Ready. Okay, tell me you're Latina without telling me you're Latina. <laughs> Um, I forget, Spanish is my first language, so I forget words in English, so I'll just say them in Spanish, and people just have to adjust. <laughs> mm, okay, true. Um, ooh, what's one thing you need in the morning? I really need to be able to feel my dogs 
around me. Like they're waking really? up before me. Yeah. What kind of dogs do you have? I have a Yorkie and they're a barkers. Mini I used to. I grew up with a Yorkie. They bark. They bark so Girl. much. Oh, it's frustrating. But when they wake up in the morning, it's really comical, and it, it gives me like a boost of energy in the morning to see like how they're so excited, and I love that. If you had the Last Supper with three Latinas, who would it be? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I I would love to pick Salma Hayek's mind. Her. Like, she's such a force. Her. Such a force. Um, yes. Come on, Cardi. Like, I mean, Cardi, I think, is like a, I mean, I know that she has multiple titles. But I also think she's a genius. I think like. Why? She, like the things that Cardi says, like, you're like, oh, facts. Like, but you, they're just so out there. And. You hear that, Cardi? Do you hear that, girl? She's going to come on the show. You right there. We're like channeling our, you know, Cardi yeah. into the space. <laughs> um, but I think Cardi from, from the beginning, like when Cardi was like just putting out like a whole bunch of IG videos, like. She was just spitting facts. Like, she's just yeah. so... But but they're really out there. Like, the ways that, that she thinks, I think, it, are just, like, really amazing. Um, and, you know, um, although she's no longer with us, I'd love to, to get to experience Celia Cruz oh. speaking about her journey. Like, yes. she is just such... Yes. Not only, you know, it's not just about her being an icon, but she has the this potency and this this spirit to her that feels so abundant. And I wonder what it's like to be in the presence of that. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you to be a Latina? Mm. I love this question so much. Um, Me being a Latina is having profound, profound love just woven into the fabric of who I am. We're such loving people. Like we like we exude love. Yeah. We are just love, you know. So I I feel like being Latina is being a representation of love. Mm-hmm. That's like full stop. I mean, I, there's so many other things, right? But like when I'm around our people, the love that I feel is just big. It's big love. Yeah. I feel like we are that. And last question, I have to ask. I really have to ask. Can we talk about the fashion? Can we please? Can we just get into it for like 30 seconds? Because yes. I'm living for all this. <laughs> Can you just you. break it down for us? Because the Prada shoes, like, <laughs> yeah. love. Thank like, you. love. I love these so much. They're so comfortable. They're new season, like, um, platforms that I was like, mm, I have to get those. Love it. Um, goodness. The, the dress is Zara. Yeah, shout out to Zara. Gucci. I love a good Zara. Yeah. <laughs> I love a good Zara girl. I, I do too. Like, Zara be having some pieces. And I'm yes. like, yes, and they fit my body. I'm like, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, the belt is Gucci and the... The, the cus- belt is Gucci, guys. The belt is Gucci. <laughs> um, but I love it because it has, like, these, these leaves. Mm-hmm. And they're the leaves that um, are represented also on the cover of my book, which are representative of like the leaves that are in our family tree so I, I i just love leaves and love wearing them so and then the jewelry is just like kind of from everywhere they're like custom jewelry like cultural pieces yes 
I'm loving it. Okay, so the book comes out. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. January 2nd. Okay. Yeah. And it's called Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. It's literally that. It's okay. a guide for all of us who haven't had that guide, who perhaps don't have therapy, or who want an accompaniment to our therapy sessions, like something that can actually be helpful in helping us to ground ourselves, to take conversations back home to our family members. There's even a, like a conversation script that I have on there for us. Um, those of us that want to do like an actual mapping of the pain, but also, you know, the the beautiful things that have been like in our family tree and who also want to be able to have like a roadmap on how to transition from these generational traumas that haven't been disrupted until they landed at our lap. And now we want to do something about it because we are the cycle breakers or the people that have that internal nudging and intuition for something to be and feel different in our families. I love that. Mm-hmm. Where can people find you? Stay connected. You're okay. so amazing, Dr. Thank Maria. You. Thank you. So are you. Thank you. And um, they can find me at drmarielbouquet.com and also at dr.marielbouquet on social. And the book, it, they can be they can find it like on both sides. Love yeah. it. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Please stay connected with her. <laughs> we got to bring you back to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. I love it's you. Been Thank you. Ditto. Take care. Thanks. <laughs>